It's the show that makes us talk. So the other night I had a dream that I was swimming in an ocean of orange soda. What? Yes, and then I woke up and realized it was a fantasy. <laughs> what about our life? With Chris and Will. Hello, world. Hi. It's another great episode of What About Our Life with Chris and Will. Welcome to another great week, another great topic with another great guest. We're so happy to have you here today. We have an interesting show again. Um, This week, we're going to be talking about life moments and um, life surviving, kind of like surviving life, better yet. And we have a wonderful guest who's going to be talking about their own life um, moments and surviving life as well. So it's going to be a very interesting, interesting show. So when we go through life moments, what is the first thing that you guys think about as far as memorable that was touching, inspiring, that kind of made you want to change your life or forced you to change your life for that matter? So Willie, what do you think? I would say people who came along the way. Yes, I agree. I mean, because that's life-changing, right? I mean, either learn from it or (laughs) it keeps happening. We go through people like it is no tomorrow. And it's not really, it's not our fault. I wasn't going to say it's not really. It's not really our fault. Um, We are nice to people. We give to people way too much. (laughs) Yes. And it's like every day we're filtering out the fake. We're filtering out the ones that matter to the people that uh, don't matter. So it's been a long hardship. And it's not just this business, but in the personal way, um, you know, they're not trying to get a hold of the things that we've done or where we're going. They're just doing things just because they can actually. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So people most definitely. What about, um, I remember nine 11. Oh, I remember where I was. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, the interesting thing of, of it is it's not, I mean, we were both working at Disney and, and of course they shut down Disney during mm-hmm. 9-11. I remember because the entire working staff for Magic Kingdom was all gathered in the tunnel while they were trying to get guests out of the park. Because again, the only way workers can get to their car and get to the tunnel to go to work is by bus. So imagine that long line of Thousands of people trying to go home at the same time. It was crazy. Do you remember in the 90s with the Gulf War? I do, but I didn't understand it. I didn't know why. No, I didn't either. I didn't either. I recall watching the television and they were showing the pictures of the flashing light uh, in Uh the night sky. So I do remember that. How about high school graduation? Everybody talks (laughs) about high school graduation. High school graduation. I wasn't with my original... Uh, I wouldn't say graduating class, but because I had gone to two different high schools, uh, my senior year, I was at a different high school. So it wasn't with my original friends and it was in different states. Too. Yeah, I wasn't either. I graduated with a class that uh, I went because I my parents pulled me back a year. So the original class I graduated, uh, I was supposed to graduate with, I didn't. And that was actually the only reunion that we went to. I didn't go to the reunions for the class I did graduate with. Wow. Tells you almost the difference of it. I have friends right. on each side, but there was a difference in the, the different classes. But I'm going to tell you, when I graduated, I was ready to leave. <laughs> I actually was glad that it was done. It was over with. I had my future already planned out. You know, things were a little off norm where I was living at home. And, you know, I had set my goal that says, I'm out of here. I went and got a job, found a place to live. I had my own car and I had $200 in cash. And not only two weeks after graduation, I jetted to Florida. And that's where I started. And I'm actually quite glad that I did. Because if I didn't, I would have, I would have, don't think I would have ever left. And you know, and we've had a lot of people encounter us with different types of advice. And yes. one of the things that, uh, well, I wouldn't really call her a leader, but she was one of my leaders, but she wasn't a leader, if you catch my drift. But one of the one things I will give her credit for is she always said, and you have that smirk on your face. Because I know what laughing, it is. <laughs> you're, she always sat there and say, it's not necessarily a bad thing to get out of your comfort zone. And I'm like, wow. That's a good piece of advice. And so I followed that because that was the only thing I followed from her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I followed that because once I get too comfortable in something, I have to get out of it because I'll never get out of it unless I'm content and really happy. And I know that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Then wonderful. Then I kind of stay with it. But getting out of your comfort zone is a big thing. 
uh, taking chances, taking risks. That's what Willie and I did. Uh, yeah. Everybody kept saying, you guys are crazy. You going from one end to the other. We don't know where you live. We yeah. don't blah, 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 blah. Well, and it's like, as what you told me, Chris, um, it's really about what you value and your worth of yourself. And that's where success comes from. Yep, it does. It does. And you know, the one thing about life, you also have to create your style in life. Yes. It's, it's not about your orientation. It's not about your culture, not about the way you look, the way you talk, any of that. It's not about where you're from either. It's your style because, you know, when you present yourself to the world, you're, you're happy with the way you present yourself, whether it's um, your attitude or just um, a trend or something that somebody can gather from you. That's your style. I have a lot of friends that, you know, I can, I can go, Oh, okay. I look at, I look at her and I can, she, she does these wonderful things and that's her style to me. But then if you go and try to emulate the same thing, it feels, I don't know. It's not you. You just can't. Yeah. You have to create your own style. Exactly. Willie and I totally have different styles. Of course. Yes. We are completely opposite. We butt heads a lot. And that's because our styles are so different. no pun intended there. (laughs) Yeah. But we always come back to each other. We do because we found that niche with it. Yes. So, you know, let's go into what about um, survivaling? of life for myself. A lot of people didn't know that, you know, I had a stroke in 2014, which led me into having heart issues. And the one thing I will give myself for is strength, because when I was in that hospital, I was paralyzed from the right side down. I was paralyzed for quite a few weeks and they told me I would never walk again. I'm like, Oh, hell no, I'm going to, I'm going to walk. Mm -hmm. And, and I did, I motivated myself to walk and it did help that I had the hottest looking (laughs) male physical therapist. He was these light skinned, buff looking, gorgeous man. Oh, he was worth it. Everybody wanted to know if he was single, but I wouldn't let them because I wanted to make sure I can have all of him first. (laughs) My reward always was, is, you know, if you can get to me, then you can touch my abs. And boy, I did. I enjoyed every little moment of it. And since then, I've been able to walk fine. You would never know I had a problem. Exactly. It was a reward. So, you know, strength and confidence is definitely the biggest thing. And a lot of people tell us that, you know, is being gay hard? And it's like, no. It's about really people's perception. It is. I mean, being gay is just a way of life. I mean, we... It doesn't define who you are exactly it's as chris said a way of life it is it's just a way of life and we had a hard time accepting that for ourselves we had a hard time accepting that we were together for as long as we were but then we started learning what that acceptance was and we started learning that you know we have to accept that there really are assholes out in the world Mm -hmm. and you know they have nothing better to do but try to intervene with our life when they have no interest in our life period at all so we've just learned how to accept that and accepting people and the way that they are and how they do things and how they are. And so that's just, yeah, it's just another way of life. I mean, being in this business, getting into the podcast, we were kind of nervous about it at first. Yeah. You should have seen the first interview we did. We were nervous. And, oh, yes. And it was like talking was sweaty. on the phone. Yes. And yes. We, we, we overcame stress and Willie's done really well. He's had to accept a lot of things about family and hurt and then Mm -hmm. mental illness. CPTSD is what he's got. And there's a lot of different things. So doing this podcast too is really a, a, I, I would say a benefit because it helps me bring back all the happy times that I can, that it triggers my memory so that I can remember them again and then go, oh, and then I remember my happiness. Yeah. And, you know, it helps not just us, but and not just you, but it helps other people, too, because bringing them back to those memories that they've had of some of these. And guests you have that, that have, moment that's just like, yeah. oh, I remember that. It's crazy. Yeah. It is. It's crazy, but it's inspiring yeah. mm-hmm. at the same time. But we've been we've been discussing a little bit about life moments and surviving life. And our guest today is an author. He's written a book. It's a true story. It's called Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart. It is by Stephen G. Taibbi. Yes, he says it so wonderful. <laughs> and it's an interesting story. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. And he has had so many different surgeries from a child, even till today, and how he's had to deal with a lot of that. So a lot of relatable stuff 
in this book. So it's, it's going to be a great, interesting conversation. So sit back, relax. Stephen is coming up. With us today is the author of the book, Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, A True Story, Stephen G. Taibbi. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hi, Willie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing wonderful. Better than could be expected. It's always good to hear. Thank you so much for being on our show. We are so honored to have read this book. This is an amazing book, by the way. Um, Thank you. With a lot of stories, a lot of great conversations, and um, a lot of... uh, personal stuff that we can take from it. Uh, So thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that you appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I I myself personally uh, have heart issues, so I I have a lot of relation to what you mentioned in the book and all the different stuff. So I can can say it's it's got a personal hit home. So I like those kind of uh, journeys. Oh, okay, good. I hope it helped you. It does. It, it did. It, it does, and it did, and it, and it will. It'll. It'll. You know, there's all different kinds of questions that, of course, I'll ask, and you'll probably address as you go through it. So, I, it's, it's, it's worth the read. I, I will say that. I mean, I would have never expected something like that to hit. I mean, my journey is a little bit different than how yours were, of course. Of course. Oh, that's that's good. Well, that's what I. That's the reason why I wrote the book. I wanted to. I wanted to. Ha- I wanted to use my story as a way to help people. Well, it definitely did. Definitely did. So, let's talk about it. Your story. Let Let's talk a little bit about. Um, first of all, how did you come up with the title "Grateful Guilt"? And then let's go into talking a little bit about the book. Well, as as you know, of course, having read my book, I've had two heart transplants as part of my story. I've had four open hearts um, in total, but um, <clears throat> two as a child. But when uh, you get an organ like a heart, where it takes, um, you know, a, a donor's death in order to receive it, um, right. most of us, and I'm not going to say all of us because it's not true, unfortunately, but most of us who've received organs that way from that kind of a source, um, we we are guilty about it. We feel guilty. We get survivor's guilt. My first after my first transplant, my survivor's guilt was crushing for years. I mean, really, it was crushing. Um, right. And my my second donor, um, um, David Jacobo uh, Jr. That's his name. Believe uh-huh. it or not, I'm going to see his family on Saturday. Um, wow. You know, if you know, I, I he left children behind. You know, you know when. It's, it makes you feel guilty. You feel guilty about it. Now, people will go, oh, he didn't die, or in my case, it did, both of them were he's. But, you know, they, they will say to me, uh, oh, he didn't die for you, or he was going to die anyway, and all these stupid things people say to you, um, right. <clears throat> which are just platitudes. Um, but it doesn't assuage us at all, you know. Um, right. So um, that's – and the other part of the, of, the, of the guilt part of my book is um, my illness as a child – pretty much broke up my family and I felt guilty about that. So I'm grateful for the organ, but I'm guilty as well. And that's where the title came from. Wow. Now, let me ask you this. You talk about the donors. Now, being an organ donor, obviously there's not enough of them in the world, clearly. What would you say to a person to convince a person to be an organ donor? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm going to answer it differently than I think you'd expect. Uh-huh. I, I don't. I don't try to convince people. I, I I find that when you try to convince people, you turn more people off. So right. I I don't try to convince people about being an organ donor. I I I like to suggest it to them. You know. I mean. Um. I I live in New York State. I live in Long Island, and we are 50 out of 50 states as far as the worst number for registered donors. We're the last state in the nation. So I obviously, and you know, I, my background, uh, I was vice president of Transplant Speakers International for, for 14 years. And, um, you know, I went around the whole country talking about donation. But I find that you can't convince somebody. Most of the times what's blocking somebody from uh, becoming a donor is all the uh, myths and misconceptions that are floating around about it that are 
that are generated by and large by the newspapers and the magazines and TV shows and the movies who, who, who love to use these myths and misconceptions to make their stories more interesting, but they scare the heck out of people, you know? Right. The one thing I insist, I do insist on something though. And I do insist that no matter what it is that you want to be, you want to be a donor or you don't want to be a donor, tell your family. This way, when if, God forbid, they're in the position of being asked about you uh, and they, if, whether or not you wanted to be a donor, they don't have to suffer again wondering what your, your, your wish was. So if you don't want to be a donor, tell your family. If you do want to be a donor, tell your family. Let them know so they don't have to suffer more. Very good advice. So – what actually happened that had to lead to you having to need a donor and what was kind of rolling through your mind for the waiting process and the, the truth of it, the, the acknowledging of it, the what is and all of that uh, emotion? I had thought, as, as you know, I had um, two open heart surgeries when I was five and six. I was the first one to live through two ASD repairs in the world. Wow. And um, the, when I had my first operation, the, the survival rate was 50%. Nowadays, they do this operation through a, with a wire through the groin. Um, but back then, it was the cutting edge. It was like the heart transplants of their day. And I, I and the doctors had told my parents that I had a year to live when I was five, then when I was six, and, you know, and then I had a 50-50 chance of living through the operation. And then when I was six, they told my parents I had about a year to live, and there was, and up to that point, no child had lived through the operation. I was the first, and then they, my parents were told that I would never get past ten. Then I was told I would never get past sixteen. Um, I had a, a, a severe heart incident on my seventeenth birthday and almost died. Uh, wow. So the light, the whole thing. Um, then I was told that I would never get out of my twenties. First, you know, first I had been told I wouldn't get out of my teens, and I almost died on my 17th birthday, and then I was told I wouldn't get out of my 20s. And then in my 30s, my doctor says to me, boy, you know, I don't know what you did, but you you beat it. Your heart is as normal as anybody's. And right. he said, go out and live. And, you know, that was great. And then suddenly when I'm in my 40s, <clears throat> I collapse with a friend of mine while on a walk. And the next day I get a stress test, and I'm told – and I get a phone call the next day from my doctor. I had collapsed during the stress test and was being given oxygen. And my doctor called me up the next day to tell me that um, I was in end-stage heart failure. And wow. that the only way out of it was going to be a, a transplant and that I had a year. That was all in one short conversation. Wow. So now to re directly answer your question, I put my head down and I bawled like a baby. Because I thought I had beaten everything. The doctors had told me I had beaten everything. It turns out I caught a virus that killed my heart. So if, if everybody wow. ever doubts that God is a comedian, there's your, there's your, your proof that he is. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and, um, I, and so my process was I put my head down on my desk and I cried. I mean, I really cried. I mean, it was all the pain, all the, all the cutting. It was all going to start again. And I thought I had gotten, gotten gotten past that part of my life. And I just cried and cried, but it was only for a short time. Uh -huh. Because I put the emotion in that what I had just been told. And I let the reaction happen to it. This is my process. Once I was done crying, and I mean in that one session, I never cried not a single tear all the way up until my transplant. Not once from that time. Wow. And that that was over a year. Um, because I was done with that. And now what I started to do is I started to put on my armor. And I started to what I call armor up. And I armored up to prepare myself for what was happening. It started that afternoon when I raised my head from my arms from crying. That's when I started to armor up. It, took, it takes a little while to completely get there. But right. I started to armor up. And then the other thing I started to do was I started to get grateful. I have to do those two things at the same time. Uh -huh. And you have to get grateful for the problem as well as for everything that's good. You have to be grateful in all things. That's the trick. It's easy to be grateful, you know, if you win a million dollars. That's easy. But right. it's a lot harder to be grateful when you owe a million dollars. And, yeah. and the whole thing is that you have to be grateful in everything. And I start getting grateful as soon as I can. And I start filling myself with gratitude. And I find that... 
when I'm filled with gratitude, when I, when I reach that point, when the only emotion I allow myself to feel other than love for my wife and my dogs is gratitude, then there's no place in you for fear and angst and, and any of the other negative emotions that will help kill you if you don't, if you don't become an active part of your caregiving team. And I become an active part of my caregiving team by being filled with gratitude and and having no room for anything but that gratitude. That's how I do it. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, thank you for saying that because um, I have some stuff that are sort of unrelated to what you were saying, but that's generally advice in anything in life, and that's that spoke to me. So I really appreciate you saying that, Stephen. Thank you, Willie. And well, you know, I think that the key to life in all seriousness is is gratitude. Wow. Yes, and, and I agree. And also, I was reading in your book, you were talking about when you were a kid um, and that you had to make or that you decided to make friends with your heart, that you had a conversation with it. Now, could you go a little yeah. bit more into that? My heart and I, well, you know, you got to remember what medicine was like back in the 50s. My first operation was in 58. And um, it was, you know, nothing like it is today. I mean, you, if you would walk into a hospital in 1958 today, you, you'd think that it was barbaric. And, um, you know, the, the children's emotional needs were not really looked at. They didn't even think that because that was the era of children were to be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was no television. Back then. I mean, you've got to remember that back then most households only had one TV. Hospitals certainly didn't, and, and I was in a ward. I wasn't in a room. And, and, and they, um, there was no television. You weren't allowed out of bed and you weren't allowed to have toys. So you lay there 24 hours a day doing nothing but thinking. Me, I thought, I, I put my, I just started thinking. And, and, and after my second operation, I started to really connect with my heart. Um, you know, I think due to all the thinking I had done for two years, you know, for two years of, uh, of fighting this. And I, I would, I would bully my heart. My heart would, I could feel when my heart wasn't working right, especially in that year between, um, the operations. And, and I would say to myself, I would go and sit in a room and I would bully my heart and I'd tell it to get back to work, work and I'd yell at it. Of course, this is um, in my head. But I'd yell at it and I'd tell it to get back to work and I could feel it. And I could, I could absolutely feel everything about my heart. I could tell you its shape. I could tell you exactly where it was. And my, my heart and I made this real connection. And I always likened my heart to a loyal German shepherd that kept me alive to the last minute. So let me ask you this. Because a lot of my struggles that I have is um, finding the right doctor that has the interest to want to deal with it and wants to find out the problem. Because when you were talking about, uh, as you with your friend, when you and uh, Larry were walking and um, you know you felt faint, or at that time you were gaining weight and all all those different symptoms and signs, and you did the test, the stress test, and all that, all that fun stuff. I was in the same boat in the past year where miraculously I was gaining um, uncontrollable weight for no reason. And then I went and did the stress test and I could barely get through it. And a lot of the activities that I, that I normally do that I enjoy doing, I really couldn't do anymore. And I started finding it to be odd and complicated. So I would go to one heart doctor my original heart doctor wasn't in town because we were in a different state at the time. And um, we went to one heart doctor. They're like, oh, you're fine. You're, you're, you're good. And then you go to another heart doctor. They don't even want to look at it. But then you call your own heart doctor from the state that I was in in Florida. And they're like, no, you need to go get this taken care of. There's a problem there. So how would you advise as far as not turning this into a mental issue because for me it turns me into a mental issue because then they start saying well you just need to go see a psychiatrist you just need to you, you're just having depression and you're having all this other stuff and it's like no I'm I'm not suppressed I just there's something wrong and I know that there's something wrong and I just need you to check it I need you to to go through that so what would you advise for something like that 
Okay, I would advise because all right, because I had a similar thing. The hospital I first went to on Long Island, the head of cardiology there told me that I had 10 years, that I could have 10 years with my heart in the condition it was in. Uh My wife is a nurse, and she knew that a friend of hers had gone to work with this doctor who was famous in New York City, Uh Dr. Donna Mancini. And it turns out Dr. Donna Mancini is considered the number one heart failure specialist on earth. (laughs) And my wife got me there. And she took one look at me after we said hello. The first thing she said to me was, you were told you have 10 years. I said, yes. She said, you're lucky if you have one. Now, that's a pretty big difference, right? I would say that what you have to do is, you know, doctors are like every other profession. They're good ones and they're bad ones. But the good ones seem to concentrate. And uh, they concentrate in in what they call centers. You know, um, so like... I, I have to go, you can only have a transplant in what they call a heart center. You have to find where the centers are. And that's where the best, best doctors will be. Um, I mean, the best doctors are in, are in Houston and uh, New York City and L.A. I mean, for the, you know, we know that those are the real major places. But there are really good heart centers in, in Michigan and in um um, and Illinois and um, and other cities too, but there are other states where you know you wouldn't catch me going to any hospital there if I could avoid it. So right. if if I was if I was somebody, I would find out where a heart transplant center was, and then there would be your best cardiologist if it was for that. Right. Well, see, with my situation, I have a, a bicuspic heart valve, and. Uh-huh. The heart valve has to be replaced because it's the aortic uh, heart valve. So it eventually does have to be replaced. But it, it's interesting because when you say the one year and the ten years and so many different things, I get I get so many different numbers from so many different doctors that say, okay, well you can live on it for a couple more years before it has to be replaced. And then the original doctor that found it, he's like, ah, about four or five years, and I think we need to go ahead and replace it. The doctor that we, we've seen where we're currently at, they're like, oh, no, you can go for 10, 15 more years on that heart valve, and, you know, it, we'll look at it later. And it's like, yeah, but everything's changing. So I completely understand on that. And, in fact, it's interesting you point that out because the doctor that found the heart valve, he worked at a heart center yeah. in Orlando, Florida. So that makes a lot of sense. Whereas these over here do not. Right. And that's what and you know, it's worth traveling. I mean my second heart transplant because the the um the number is so low as far as donations are concerned, I was sent to LA because my doctor didn't think I'd survive the wait in New York. And wow. I had to go to LA. And I went to Cedars out here. I'm in LA right now and um I had to go to Cedars in LA and I tell you what was so funny about it was that I had more than one doctor act like like a child with a rock star run up to me and go, you really know Dr. Mancini? I mean, literally. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know? and, and believe me, that's a really good heart center on its own. So, right. um, you know, doctors are like everything else. There are good ones, there are bad ones, and the good ones seem to concentrate in the centers. That's what I've found. Wow. Now there may be some there may be some really great doctor in some area you wouldn't expect. I would believe that absolutely, but the, your odds of finding that doctor are low. You have to go to where they are. No, I that's agree. what I would that's what I would recommend. So how you know? do you another, find- another thing I always do is always ask a doctor who would you go to, who would you send your wife or your husband to. That's who that's another thing I do. Oh, that's and I, I get different answers when I do that. Hmm. Very interesting. I've never tried yeah. that. I might actually try that. So how do you how do you find comfort or a calm with all this that's going on with your life? How do you find that? Well, this is kind of metaphysical, but you want, if you want that answer is um either way. I I am a very religious person in my own way. I I am my wife is an uber Catholic. I actually I think she's a nun in hiding, but um <laughs> But I am I am not that way at all. I don't go to church. Actually, right. in in the way I believe in God, going to church is an insult to Him. Because and listen, this is just me. I if you go to church every day, I used to do that. It's fine with me. This is me. 
I'm not right. talking about anybody else. So, you know, I'm not trying to offend anybody. If they, whatever somebody believes and how they believe it, that's fine with me because I think we're all individuals that way. I um, agree. Agree. I, but I had this really strong faith that, um, everything that's happening to me, and this comes from being grateful for so much. Everything that's happening to me is happening for a reason. I believe that every one of us, you know what a holodeck is? Yes. From Star Trek? Yes. yes. Okay. I believe every one of us is in, a, in their own personal holodeck for their entire life. I'm in mine, you're in yours, and everybody else is in theirs. And each one of us is being given this holodeck program that's designed specifically for us. And everything that happens to me is by design and is meant for me. And for some reason, it's there for me because it's there to make me stronger or it's what I have to get through before I go on to the next holodeck. It's I have to get through this one to get to the next one. So I'm always grateful. Even when everything is bad, I'm grateful. And then this way I can get through everything. And and I have faith that um, – that this is being done for a reason. To get to finish this thought, I look at, at myself and I believe in eternity. And I believe that right now I'm in a tapestry. And I can see the thread above me. I can see the thread below me. I can see the threads next to me. But I can't see anything else. And I can't see what the tapestry portrays. I don't know what my thread makes it the picture of the tapestry. I have no idea. I'm never going to know that in this life, but I do believe I'm in this tapestry and I can't doubt those things because my, my string in that tapestry is this, is this life that I've been given and I just have to live this life and be grateful for this life because this is the life I needed to move to the next one. Interesting. Wow. What a perspective. Um, just, I know I haven't been saying much, but I've really been just listening in. Just how you've been responding is just, I feel it. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but it, it does. It does really, really. It, it's making a difference. Well, I'm glad for that. <laughs> yeah. And I was also reading in your book, too, because, you know, when doctors would tell you you only have a certain amount of time, and there was one part in there that you had said, if a doctor tells you not to do something, you went ahead and did it. Um, so can you go a little bit further into like, if there was anything that you wanted to do, regardless of what they had said, what were those things that you, that you wanted to do anyway? Well, the main one, well, first of all, that was the way I was then. And now I'm the exact opposite. Now I am Mr. Compliant. (laughs) I went from the way I was as a teenager to the way I am now, but that's because I have, I have every single doctor I have ever had said they've never known a patient who knew their body as well as I do. I'm incredibly in tune with my body. I I listen to my body. My body never lies to me. I get a sense from my body. I act on it because my body's telling me something. When I was a kid, they kept trying to restrict me in all these things, and I kept believing if I was restricted, it would kill me. And so I would not do what they would tell me. And the biggest one was my doctor. I, I always wanted to be a pilot since I was a little kid. And and I told my doctor, and uh, he told me, well, you're not going to be a pilot because um, the FAA demands that if you've had heart problems, not only do you have to pass the FAA exam, but your current cardiologist has to sign off on you. And uh, he was not going to sign me off. He says, I'm not going to write that letter, so you can forget it. So wow. I was at work one day and um, in New Jersey, and I'm looking up at the sky, and I see all these beautiful sailplanes pirouetting around in the sky. And, and I happened to be on the job that day with a guy I went to college with, the only day we ever worked together. And I'm looking up there, and he sees it, and he goes, well, what are you looking at? I go, I'm looking at, I'm looking at those things. And, and, and I go, well, boy, I wish I could do that. He goes, you can do that. I said, no, I can't. I can't get the medical. And he goes, how did you get here? I go, I drove. What do you think? He goes, then you can fly. He goes, you don't need a medical for gliders. <laughs> so oh, wow. two weeks later, and that was the airport where he was a glider pilot. What are the odds? So two wow. weeks later, there I, there I am with his instructor in an airplane. 
And I didn't tell my doctor until after I had my license. And my doctor turned so many shades of colors when I told him. He was so mad at me. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and then he stuck his finger in my face, like an inch from my nose, wagging it, going, whatever you do, no acrobatics. So I have six hours of acro in my book. <laughs> that was then. I'm, and I'm not, I'm the opposite way now, because now, now is different. And I react to what, what it is at the time. So at that time, I needed to be a pilot. At this time, I need to be compliant. And that's, you know, I just do it that way. I know it's probably a dangerous thing to say because I don't know if somebody's going to do the wrong thing. I hope not. But that's me. But I, I'm very attuned to who I am physically. Now, you mentioned something in there about how all this kind of affected your social skills in a sense. Um, how did it actually affect your social skills and how did you overcome that? Well, because I was the I was the runt of the litter. I was this little skinny kid who was sickly, who had been, you know, honestly the way you know I, I was whisked away from my life. Next thing I know, I'm in a in this horrifying place. I'm being operated on. I'm, you know, I I, I don't know what my body is going to look like the next day. Uh-huh. Horrifying stuff. Seriously, I had two years of that, and. Right. You know, that was during the prime socialization years, you know, and and then I come out of this thing. I'm in shell shock as a kid. Nobody thought anything of it back then, but I was in shell shock. And next thing you know, I'm being put back into school, being told to be normal. I had no idea how to do right. that. So yeah. I was uh, a magnet for all the bullies. Uh-huh, I, I used to get beat up all the time and or made fun of all the time. Usually in 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 school, it was the, I was made fun of. I wasn't beat up that much, but when I went to camp, I got beat up. Until I finally, I one day, I attacked the bully who attacked me, and I was so filled with rage, and it took him so by surprise. I I beat him up. I really beat him up, and um, I beat him up for two or three, like three or four days after that, and. I didn't stop until the counselors called me a bully, which I was so proud of. (laughs) No, I really was. I was really proud of it. And then a couple of years later, I go to to, uh, a new school, and a football player decides that he's going to pick on me. Uh And I just attacked him. He was was much bigger than me. He was a full head taller than me. And I attacked him. Um, first, you know, because he shoved me. He kept shoving me and shoving me. And I was noticing what he was doing and then the way we were moving, he was moving me to my advantage. And then I just, I just rushed him like I did that other kid at camp and I shoved him into a wall and I, and I kicked him, you know, where it really counts <laughs> with my knee. And uh-huh. as he bent over, I, I, I did a, a, a double-fisted hammer, hammer upwards into his jaw and his head snapped into the concrete wall behind him and he was semi-conscious and he just slid along the wall and I left him there and the entire class saw me do that and the entire class saw me take out a football player and I was a skinny little kid but the thing is that I had the surprise on him and um, nobody had nobody has ever bothered me since then Wow. for some reason. <laughs> No, I mean, no, 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 but people don't know that about, you know, they don't know that I did that then. But I think something in me that was attracted to the bullies went away forever that day. Now, how do you deal with the um, outside emotions? Like if something like that were to come back in, how do you guard it away? Or use your armor, as you had described. I don't know how I would handle a bully at this point. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm well past the uh, time of my life where I can beat people up. Um, right. You know, um, I would just probably deal with them emotionally, and uh, I'd probably find the cracks in their armor emotionally and and go after them that way. But um, I don't really see that happening because I know I'm surrounded by a lot of good people now. I'm I, I'm I have a very blessed life, so. Hopefully that'll never happen again, you know? Very, very good. Now let's go back into your family. You had mentioned a little bit about um, how what had gone on with your life had kind of broken up the family a little bit. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, my parents didn't have the best marriage to start with. And, And my illness, my mother... Once I got sick, my mother just became mama bear, and all the rest of the family 
got shut out with this fence my mother built for her and me to be inside of. And I didn't want to be in that fence. I wanted to be out playing with my siblings and, right. you know, when, and, and having time with my father. But my mother, my mother separated all of us. So it was, it was two camps were formed. It was me and my mother and, and my siblings and my father on the outside. And you could imagine my father was looking at his wife was giving the attention that he deserved to his, to his little son, you know. And my uh-huh. siblings just see nothing more than me being babied by my mother. And I didn't want that attention. I really didn't want it. But I didn't have any – I was a little kid. I didn't have any control over the situation. And, right. you know, resentments took root and, you know, everything went the, the natural course from that kind of a situation. Was there ever a point – and I'm sure there was – but was there ever a point in your life that you just simply wanted to give up? No. No? No, no. Because – um, no, I, I just – even as a child, I told you, I had all that thinking time. I just accepted that this was my lot. I just, this, this is the hand I've been dealt, so I'll deal with it. So I always had that attitude. And how do you deal with, because uh, I heard you, saw you had mentioned uh, something along the lines of PTSD. How do you deal with that uh, as an adult today? Okay. Now, it's not, PTSD is genu- generally a single event thing. What I have sometimes called complex trauma or mm-hmm. other things, but PTSD can be, uh, the, the doctor I finally ended up with, she can cure PTSD in one or two sessions and it's gone. But wow. that complex trauma, complex trauma is more, yeah, they use, use things like EMDR. Um, she likens what happened to me is more like the nine-year-old girl who gets those special visits from her father for four or five years, you know? Right. And it just keeps building. It becomes like an onion. And it's way more, it's not, like PTSD people can become violent to others. People who have what I have from this, we become, we take everything inward. And we, um, so like, I, I, there's no chance that I'm going to ever like attack somebody or anything like that because when you have complex trauma, you take it inward and you attack yourself. So right. how that worked how that worked out for me was that um before I met my wife um I had had relationships with women that could have been magic if I didn't uh, sabotage them and I I could have had a better career if I didn't sabotage that um right. because that's what people with complex trauma do they they don't believe you believe deep inside that you're no good that um there's a reason why all this stuff is happening to you and mm-hmm. you and you you attack yourself. So, but you, thankfully, thankfully, because of Sarah Zim, Zimmerman, who is helping me with this, uh, I'm over that now. Oh wow! And she is she she's the the doctor that you were talking about that helped you um, get through that. Yeah, an MSW, who's an expert in 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 um in PTSD and complex trauma. Wow. So, what would you give? Um, what kind of advice would you give to a person in that situation? I mean, I'm sure you would recommend going to see somebody like Sarah, but for a person that they want to go see Sarah, but they're fighting themselves to get to that point. Look, if you want to have your life and you want to have your life uh, be one that's fulfilling and happy, you have to you have to get over these things. And it's not your fault. That's the big thing you have to recognize, that it's not your fault. And that you deserve a happy life as much as anybody else does. That's what I would tell them. And that they should seek out an expert in in complex trauma or PTSD, and somebody who knows EMDR, who's um, a specialist in that, because it's a lot of people do it badly. You need to really look for somebody. And then I would go to that person, and I would and I would avail myself to treatment because otherwise you're not going to have full life. You're going to always have this this fight with yourself you're always going to have this anger at yourself and the shame and you don't deserve it. It, it you're it's not you that caused all those things to happen but that's what we tend to believe we think that we were the, you know I, I was thinking that i must deserve this and that's what they people who have this think they would think they ha- they deserve it but you don't deserve it and you do deserve getting better and having a fuller a fuller and happier life that's what you deserve wow very good very interesting to hear. Yes. 
So um, would you say the same for uh, a parent who has a child that's kind of going through the same similar situations that you went through? I mean, not the negative, but with heart issues, would you say the same to them or what advice would you give to them to help them get through it? Okay, there is scientific fact now that when you have open heart surgery of any kind, it changes the chemistry in your brain and you become depressed. Almost uh-huh. everybody who's had open heart surgery nowadays is put on um, on uh, uh, antidepressants. And, right. uh, it's, it, and it's necessary because they know that it changes your brain chemistry. Uh, I'm actually trying to work myself off antidepressants now because I don't want to be on them forever. They get dangerous. They're dangerous to your brain. They can actually cause, um, um, you know, when your brain leaks, they can do that. Uh, right. So I don't want to stay on them forever. I'm working my way off them now. Uh, but doctors now know that if you have um, heart surgery, you're going to need some kind of antidepressant, and you're probably going to need some kind of um, of, of, of mental health help. And I would say to parents that they need to be aware of that, and that they should they should take the child to to a doctor who knows what they're doing, not just anybody. You need to go to somebody who understands um, what happens after open-heart surgery. It can't just be any doctor. But I do think parents should, should, you know, especially if the child is young. I mean, I was looking for help when I was in high school. I knew I needed help when I was in high school. I I looked and looked and looked for years, looking and looking. And really, up until I found Sarah, she was the only one who could really help me. And so how often do you see your donors? I know you said you were going this weekend. So how often do you see them? This will be the second time. Second time. And how do you feel when you you meet these incredible, the family members of these incredible donors? Well, but just like you think I would feel, I was nervous as heck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's nerve-wracking, and it's nerve-wracking for them. It's a very odd situation. I mean, First of all, I'm older. I'm twice as old as their, their son was when he died, almost. Um, right. You know, and and um, I'm actually older than the father. Wow. So I was like, how are they going to feel about this this uh, old New Yorker getting their young son's heart? And that was a you know, but they were very good about it. They you know, uh, they they could have been they could have been upset about it. Um, when I was in transplant speakers, I'd actually seen. Uh, um, a first-time donor and uh, recipient family meeting each other almost broke out into a fist fight. I mean, that happens. So, I mean, there's a lot of emotion involved there. And I remember the ex-wife of my donor saying to me, well, how do you, how did you feel coming here? And I said, I was, I, I'll be honest with you, I was pretty nervous. And she said, what were you nervous about? I thought, I thought you might want the heart back. But, um, <laughs> I said I thought it was going to be like apocalypto, and uh, so, so she um, she she really laughed. And um, but it's weird. I mean, when I was talking to to the mother a few days ago, um, I said to her, you know, this is really pretty weird for me. And she goes, well, you know, this is pretty weird for us. It's weird. I mean, I'm walking around with their with their past son's heart, and uh, he's not here, and I am. And there's got to be a feeling from them of why is he alive and my son isn't. And right. there's a feeling of me of why am I alive and not their son. I mean, why am I dead and not and instead of their son being alive? And right, so right. it's it's mutual that way, I guess. And it's very rare, by the way, that uh, donors and families meet. Only three percent of the letters are ever answered. Wow. 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 Well, good luck with this weekend, and um, I know it'll be a wonderful time either way. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fine. I love the family, so Very nice. it's going to be okay. Well, it is definitely a must-read book. Yes. I will I will say that. And can you tell our listeners exactly where all they can find it? Um, it's mostly on Amazon. I know that um, some people are picking it up at Barnes and Noble, but I think everybody's going to Amazon. It's definitely on Amazon, and it's on all the. Um, all those places you can buy books on the internet. I didn't realize right. how many there were. Um, I know, like I said, people are getting it at Barnes and Noble. I'd say the easiest way to get it would just be at Amazon. There's also a Kindle version. 
you know. And my website, um, www.gratefulguilt.com, has the trailer to the book. If that, if you want to check that out before you buy, uh, right. then you can buy the book from my website too. But uh, it'll take you right to the Amazon thing for my book, so you get the right pri- the right price. It's cheaper on Amazon than it is in uh, Barnes and Noble, and um, that's where they can get it. You know, and and they can get the Kindle too. Wonderful. Well, mm-hmm. I'm I'm definitely saying it's it's a must read again, and highly recommend it because it it did touch me for things that I'm going through, and then having these and conversations. I wish you well with, with that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I've always, I, like I said earlier, you know, fate has its direction for me. So whenever my time is my time, then I'm grateful for my life that I've gone through and I've and went through the good and the bad and. You know, I, I take it for what I need to do. But until the meantime, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And um, so I'm very exactly. happy with that. Yeah, so we are very thankful for that. Yes, yes, indeed. And thank you so much for not only writing your book, but sharing with us your experiences and your emotions. I mean, that means so much. So, I mean, that's very well, that- courageous of you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yes. Well, Stephen, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing your story, your thoughts, and your directions with us. I mean, we really do appreciate it. And, again, this is a wonderful book to have, and I'm pretty sure we'll keep going backwards and rereading it again (laughs) just to confirm to ourselves that, you know, hey, look, this is what we need to do to help us through whatever it is that we're going through. So, Thank you so much for being on the show. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. See, I told you what an inspiring story, a true story at that. Yeah, and you notice that I, though I didn't say very much, but I was listening and it was just, uh I'd recommend the book. Yes. <laughs> I'd recommend the book. Go get it. Go get it. Go get it. It's so worth it. It was relatable. It was a wonderful conversation. And it is very, I would say, simple and easy to read. It's it's yes. not one of those books that it's so intensive on the eyes, I guess, yeah. is what I'm it looking for. very good. But it'll get you, yeah, definitely. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on our show. We love the book. And thank you guys for joining us and being with us for another great episode. And next week we have another great episode, another great topic with another great guest. And remember, we love you guys. We love you guys. We know you love yourself. And that's the best thing to give to the world is be yourself in this world. Yes. For now, guys, we've got to go. Bye. Bye.